stitching and burning and hiking. England, Nepal, African animals. Oh, my. Stay tuned. Good afternoon. I am Chrissy Hewitt. Issues and Ideas continues now with Ears on Art, a twice-monthly program that my co-host Stephen DeLuke and I produce here at the studios of KCBX Public Radio for the California Central Coast. Our guest today and next week is Kate Froman, primarily a fiber artist, but as you will learn there are a lot of other things that make up her sewing basket. Kate has been in this community for over 40 years and has been an active part of the group known as Central Coast Craftmakers, an affiliate of what is now the San Luis Obispo Museum of Art. Over the years, this group has sponsored many juried exhibits, which started locally and for the last several years, have included entries from around the state. Craftmaker's current exhibit, called Dimensions, is on display at Sloma through February 16th. As you will hear, Kate has many interests, has done a lot of traveling, and ends up in parts of the world that most of us don't get to. And much of it she has done on foot, so the experiences are many. Sometimes it is really obvious how visiting other communities has an impact on how we see the world, and sometimes it's more subtle than that. I certainly got the impression, talking with Kate, that the years of travel are an intimate and valuable part of her life, but that they are not necessarily what materializes instantly into her creative expressions with fiber. All I know is, is that for years, almost any time I would see her, I would learn that she was just about to go to Nepal or some other exotic-sounding place, or had just returned. As you will hear, I have acquired several of her wearable art pieces and feel very fortunate that I've been able to do that over the years, especially since she has shifted gears and isn't creating as many of these anymore. They are all reversible, allowing me to create a change of mood if I'm feeling particularly daring, and otherwise just something that makes you feel good when you put it on. Stephen and I met up with Kate at her home in San Luis Obispo. I think we refrain from crunching on the wonderful crackers and cheese that she provided, but it was a little like having our dinner with Kate Froman. So, join us. Hi, Kate. Hi, Krissa. Hi, Steve. Hello, world. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody's accounted for. Kate Froman and I have known each other for quite a while. When did you arrive? I arrived in the summer of 72. Well, then not by much, because I was September or something of 76. I got you beat. I'm August of 1970. So you haven't seen any changes, right? A few. A few. Quite a few. Is it the same place? Well, you can still bump into the librarian or the woman who checks you out at the grocery store. The town hasn't gotten that much 
bigger. It just looks very different. I met you, I think, first probably through the craft makers, through the then San Luis Obispo Art Center. That's right. This was a group that Bob Nichols and some others put together that was trying to expand the concept of what could be available at a Christmas sale (laughs) and snobby or whatever, but it was, uh, let's move a step above the potholder and into something else. There were several people in this town already that were working with ceramics, I know, and you were working with fiber, and I'm working with metal, and then glass blowers, and quite a few other disciplines started to come into that, so it made for a very rich heritage, and we announced in our last month show that the current craft maker show called Dimensions is now at Sloma and will be up for another week and a half. So in terms of your story, I know from a wonderful piece that you did for one of our holiday programs that your mother did a lot of sewing. So is it logical to think that that's how you kind of got into the fiber world? No, I think that was the beginning. Um, My mother made, you know, all our Easter clothes and birthday party favors and cakes that she decorated. I mean, she was that kind of homemaker. And, you know, with six kids, she did it many times a year. And I remember learning to sew on her treadle machine. I'm very pleased to have electricity. Uh, (laughs) I've always liked fabric. When we first moved here, my mother had moved with us from Redlands, then Lompoc. And I realized quickly that she needed to have a life of her own. And I noticed in the TT that there was a quilt guild just starting up. So I said, Mom, this would be great for you. So I took her to the first meeting, which was at the Ludwig Center, and we both joined immediately. It was a bunch of women all excited about fabric and showing quilts. And so that got me back into making quilts. I had made a couple for friends, but that really got me into cutting and piecing and sewing, and my mom loved it. So so I started making traditional quilts. And I was making a fan quilt for some friends, one of whom was Japanese. And as I was cutting the pieces out, they're fan-shaped pieces, pieces were falling on the floor, which is where a lot of my work seems to end up. And I thought, oh, these pieces on the floor are even more interesting than putting together these fans in regular blocks. And, And so I made this piece called Evolution of a Fan Quilt which Alice Sennett wanted when I I showed it at the um, art museum. And that got me looking at sort of deconstructing, which was a fun way to play. Mm -hmm. So from traditional quilts, then I moved more into clothing, which was very popular in the 80s, 90s. A lot of the pieces at first felt like you were wearing a quilt. And then gradually, you know, the designs got more refined. That was a lot of fun. Made a lot of vests, a lot of jackets. And Chris is one of my most loyal purchasers. Fortunately, because I get lots of comments from them every time I wear them. And for a while, I was trying to carry your business card in a pocket so that people go, oh, okay. And now I know that you don't do as much of this type of activity anymore. So I kind of go, huh. I have them. The one that I'm wearing right now is one that I was smart enough to pick up. I was helping to install the juried craft maker exhibit one year, and you had entered this sleeved 
vest, so I guess it's a jacket, but the sleeves come off, so it can be either. And as with many of Kate's pieces, it's totally reversible, so you get two or three or four for the price of one. <laughs> anyway, the juror didn't accept it, so I instantly bought it, wore it <laughs> to the opening, went, nah, 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 nah. <laughs> okay, so you're working the wearable, and then... Then something happened. <laughs> So in 19, would have been 98, I had the opportunity to go to Bhutan as a physical therapist. My art group was also scheduled to have a show at the art museum. And I thought, oh, I'm not going to have time to get three cut and sew and three layers and quilt. And then I've got to go to something lighter. I've got to, I've got to do something that's one layer. And I thought, what am I going to do? I, oh, silk. Silk is nice. And so immediately switched to making some silk pieces. And I think I actually made a jacket out of some kind of silk organza. And it was uh, one of the best of show pieces. So that was very exciting. And I'm pretty much still working with silk, although there's plenty of cotton around the house. <laughs> <laughs> but silk is forgiving, and uh, you can burn it, and you can tear it, and you can paint on it. Um, so, um, it's, it's a lot of fun now to, to, and I've got so many remnants of things that cutting and pasting. When you talk about burning, you're not throwing it into a fire and burning it up to get rid of it. You are burning it for the purpose of? I'm making little silk petals. So basically cutting out little tiny rectangles, trimming off the corners, some of which are in this piece over here, uh, saving all the little cut-off pieces. And then I use a pair of needle-nose pliers, and I have a candle, and I just rotate this piece through the candle flame, blowing on it when I want it. I like the shape I have, and I do keep a little bucket of water handy, but I've managed not to set anything on fire. I've made I don't know how many scarves with silk petals on them. I sold a whole bunch of those. Over the years, I think I finally, you know, glutted the market. I don't do them anymore. <laughs> but this was a way to get a more organic kind of shape. Exactly. Yeah. And and uh, the piece that just fell off the wall has some of those burned petals on it. <laughs> and being silk, it did not come to a clatter bang sound hit the ground. Either. No. No, it was very subtle. It was just like a little little fluffing down. <laughs> <laughs> You're working predominantly with silk now, is that correct? Pretty much, although this is a combination of silk and cotton together. That's called pieces too small to save. <laughs> <laughs> so those are the little sweepings. Um, yeah, uh, I'm trying very hard to use my stash and not to buy anything unless I really have to. So it does set certain parameters for me, which is a good thing. So some of my pieces tend to resemble one another since I have a lot of little pieces. Um, yeah, mostly silk. Now I'm, I'm experimenting a little bit by um, picking an artist. I have a gr one group. In fact, Deb Spadafore told me she had a group and they picked Gaudi and they all went home to make a piece a la Gaudi. I thought, well, that's a good idea. I know nothing about Gaudi and you know, got a book at the library, watched a video and made a piece. And I thought, this is fun. It made me do things I wouldn't have ordinarily thought about doing. So now I'm doing a second piece from a Dutch artist. And that's been totally fun. So I think maybe once a month, I'll just pick an artist and get inspired by, by their point of view. 
I was just up in San Francisco over New Year's, and they had a Klimt exhibit. And his paintings are look exactly like that. They look like they're patchwork quilts because mm-hmm. how he arranges the color and the squares and the shapes and things like yeah. that. And then all of a sudden there will be a head. You know? <laughs> are you thinking when you're doing this that there's a necessity to have somebody that's particularly known? Or is it just somebody that you're responding to? Yeah, I mean, that, that little piece, that dark piece that's up there, was a Dutch artist I'd never heard of. Someone said, oh, this, his pieces translate well into quilts because they're kind of um, somewhat primitive. Uh, I just went online and looked at a, a lot of pictures of his work. He's a painter, basically, and just fell in love with the way he did trees. They look like lollipops. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, that's fun. You know, made that piece in like a day. So no, I think I'll just run through a book and point. (laughs) (laughs) You are listening to Ears on Art here on KCBX Public Radio for the California Central Coast. Co-host Stephen DeLuke and I are visiting today with Kate Froman, a longtime San Luis Obispo resident whose specialty is fiber. But who has many interests in life. We continue now as Kate talks about the things that stimulate an idea for her next creative project. Do you find yourself responding most often to subject matter, or is it sometimes color that's doing it? Or Yeah, a, a variety of things. Sometimes, sometimes I think of a title. Um, and sometimes it's just one piece of fabric. Uh, sometimes it's a necessity. I got to make something immediately. Um, the piece that's hanging in the living room made out of men's shirts. I went to my husband's, I think, 50th college reunion. And on the way home, I thought, I got to make a piece in a week to enter into a craft maker show. What am I going to do? I thought, well, I got to start with something that's kind of already somewhat finished. And my mother was volunteering at the thrift store downtown near the fish market. Mm-hmm. So they had dollar a bag sales. I went in and just grabbed a whole lot of men's shirts and came home and cut them apart and then reassembled them. It was a big piece. It was probably over life-size kimono size. It was very successful, and it actually got to travel around the country for a year in a national show. Well, then a couple of years ago, another show came up, and there were size restrictions. So I said to Malumeo, can you cut down a piece of your, you know, one of your pieces and make it smaller and still have it be in a show? She said, of course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so so now I'm recycling. <laughs> there are no rules. That's right. That's what I'm finding out. <laughs> well, the painters get to just paint over. Mm-hmm. So might as well be able to cut and paste or whatever you need to do. I I loved, uh, Sally Tipman had a a watercolor painting in a show, and she had torn up a bunch of paintings she didn't like anymore and stapled them together. I thought, that is a great idea. (laughs) (laughs) When I was in printmaking, I would take two or three of my prints and cut them into strips and weave them together, and you'd get this weird-looking thing, but then people would back away and go like, Oh, I kind of recognize that. <laughs> That's great. It really is great. Well, I must say, as a metalsmith, I don't do that a whole lot. But uh, not because I probably don't want to, but sort of the name of the game, I guess. A little while ago, you brought up the topic of travel. 
it seems like every time I look around, not only are you going someplace, but you're not going to the routine places <laughs> that a lot of us do, namely, let's say, Western Europe. So how has that all played out? Well, it's been very interesting. I mean, I grew up in a big city and went away to school, became a physical therapist. My family really didn't do a lot of outdoor stuff, uh, but I married a native Californian, and we traveled across the country and camped, and that was the first time I'd ever, you know, really experienced the great outdoors. And I was hooked immediately. Mm-hmm. I loved being outside. So I did a lot of camping, backpacking with my kids. Just after my first child was born, it was the Peace Corps and Kennedy's favorite, famous speech. And we actually did sign up for the Peace Corps. In the meantime, we had a baby. And so we couldn't go with the Peace Corps. We ended up in Kenya with another program uh, for two and a half years. And my daughter was born there. And that was a wonderful experience. I, I kind of always wanted to try to, living on a commune or in a community. And we were isolated. There was a village a mile away, a very small village. It didn't have electricity. But we lived on this compound with 17 staff. There were English, Kenyans, and a couple of Americans, dependent on one another, you know, sugar, kerosene, child care, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a great experience. Got to see a lot of animals. We did a lot of camping on our vacations. My mom came and lived with us for five months, so that was a great experience. My husband's parents came. We did a nice little safari. After we came home, you know, it was kind of raising kids, etc. But I still loved backpacking and camping. <clears throat> After my divorce, I met my second husband on the very first Sierra Club trip that I went on, and his lifelong dream was to hike in England. And so we did that. We were gone for six weeks. I abandoned my kids with friends and their dad. And we walked across England. So the following year, I was asked if I'd like to lead a trip for the Sierra Club in England. And that kind of started some of that. Uh, And then I thought, well, England's kind of tame. Maybe you should try to (laughs) do something else. In the meantime, a couple of friends were interested after we did the John Muir Trail. Uh, Where else can we go? Well, let's go to Nepal. So we went to Nepal, and then I started leading trips in Nepal. But eventually, this opportunity in Bhutan came up through Linda Wolf and Karma Dorji. And I went as a PT and um, taught and did a little trek there and then continued leading there. So seen a lot of Bhutan, beautiful country. Go while you can. (laughs) It's changing, too. I'm going to show my ignorance can you put it on a map for me? <laughs> yes, it's, a, it, it's north of India, uh, east of Nepal. It's in the Himalayas, and it's a, a democracy. It has a king, but uh, it has a, uh, something like the House of Representatives. They're interested in gross national happiness rather than <laughs> the product. Changing from a rural economy to a tourist economy, of course, um, but the Himalayas don't change that much. Mm-hmm. Now, China's just to the north of Bhutan, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, yes. okay. Yes, but India is kind of their protector, right. yes. But they're an independent kingdom. So. And these hiking that you did for the Sierra Club, how many people would be going, and were you often doing the same path, more or less? Or There were usually about 12 people from all over the country, Um, I worked with the same concessionaire for all of the Bhutan trips. 
But there were three or four different routes that we did. Some where you were camping for 10 days or 12 days, others where you stayed in small hotels and day hiked, depending on the terrain. So the camping tracks were really wonderful because you usually were located slightly near a village, so the children mm-hmm. would come out. Old people would come out. They'd build a big fire, much bigger than the Sierra Club would ever permit. (laughs) And and you'd be dancing and lots of the local drink. Mm -hmm. And you had people sitting on your lap or you were sitting on other people's laps and lots of dancing. Uh, Great, great one-night occasions. How has this influenced what you create? That's an interesting question. The the piece behind you, Steve, Mm -hmm. that's called On the Way to Shangri-La. A lot of uh, Nepal, especially in the Mustang area, is really high desert. It's fourteen or 15,000 feet, very dry, um, uh, big canyons, big rivers, river bottoms anyway. So the color is very muted, and there are very few people, um, camels, donkey trains, uh, going back in time. So yeah, I've used more darker color, many more darker colors than what I've often done because of that influence. Yeah. And in terms of the fabric that you're seeing in these places, in terms of what people are wearing or creating, is that stuff that you come home with at all, or does it have a, any kind of, oh, that's what I want to do or what I want to stay away from? Uh, <laughs> well, that piece that's hanging there in the hall is a modern version of what... Um, uh, well, that's the more traditional embroidery. That's silk, very old piece. I'm not a weaver, and even if I were, I would never opt to do anything that complicated. <laughs> but I, I did buy a couple of old pieces and um, actually cut into them. It took me three years, but it was a very old, worn piece, and I finally thought, it's okay, it's going into a, it's going to have another life. Uh, so there's some of that on that piece. I mean, you were enjoying it, but it wasn't that you were running home and instantly revamping what you had been doing before, necessarily. No, no. And in fact, coming home, it usually took me a while before I even got back to doing anything. <laughs> <laughs> I remember some trips, especially leading backpack trips, where there were bears, you know, in the Sierra, be out like 10 or 12 days, not sleeping very much. I would come home, and for 10 or 12 days, I would sleep 10 hours a night. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, the first couple of times, I, I thought, God, I'm sleeping a lot. And then I realized, yeah, <laughs> there's a reason for that. That, <laughs> that bear watch definitely keeps you up. Oh, it does, yes. <laughs> and it's also the lack of oxygen, you know, because right. when you were living at basically sea level here, and that's you get right. up into eight and 9,000 feet. That's that's a great lack of oxygen up there. Well, you know that actually eight or nine thousand feet is quite comfortable. Mm-hmm. You know, after the first twenty-four to forty-eight hours, and because we traveled fairly slowly, you know, by the time we got up to fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, even, um, you walked more slowly and you breathed harder. But if you do it slowly enough, you do acclimatize. Most people did, and there were a few people that didn't, but. Most people did. As they say in Swahili, poli poli sana, very, very slowly. (laughs) The Italian of that has just escaped me. (laughs) But I would hear it all the time. What? Very slowly. Oh, very slowly. In Spanish, it's slowly. (laughs) Well, every year it is more slowly. (laughs) 
I don't know, it just seems like there's this wonderful sort of development of new ideas as you're working along and whether you're doing wearable art or whether you're doing hanging art, um, silk or cotton. I haven't heard that any other materials of any dominance are coming in. Well, I have a a nice selection of oil sticks. I really would like to, I'd love to try some painting. And I've, I've just been experimenting with magic markers, mm-hmm. uh, good quality magic markers on silk. Um, so you just paint on it, and then you use alcohol. Mm-hmm. and To bleed it. Yeah. yeah. And so I've got things pinned up upstairs. It's, you know, instant gratification, mm-hmm. for one thing. And it's not particularly toxic, which is nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, yeah. I, uh, I think that eventually... I'll probably move into something else, but it's just playing right now. Toxicity comes in where for you in terms of what you've been doing over oh, the years? You know, I was just at a meeting of a cutting-edge fiber group that I'm with, and uh, there's a, do you know that sticky stuff that you use to take tags off China, you know, that mm-hmm. dissolve stuff? Right. Well, there's something called Citrosolve, and somebody just gave a, a little talk uh, this past Saturday and she was using National Geographic pages. And you put the citrus off, you paint it on, and then you can use your hand, you can mm-hmm. use a comb, and you, the, the, the image becomes fluid. But, boy, <laughs> you got to use it in a well-ventilated space because mm-hmm. it really has strung. In fact, one person at the table said... If you're going to open the Citrusolve, I have to leave the room. It gives me an instant migraine. <laughs> and you could even smell it through the bottle, you know, mm-hmm. the plastic bottle. And, and she said, don't ever put, uh, don't ever put it down on anything because it will dissolve plastic. Don't use a plastic cup, for instance. <laughs> it uh, sounds like a lovely compound. <laughs> <laughs> but on the other hand, she had these wonderful pages mm-hmm. from the National Geographic that she had distorted that, you know, just looked like like watercolor. So, I mean, it kind of looks interesting. I know a lot of collage artists who use National Geographic images, particularly because of the quality of the paper that they're printed on. It's an extremely high-quality paper, so it can take that kind of chemical abuse and still hold up. Yeah, apparently it's Mm soy-based. Yeah, so now i got to find some National Geographics. Oh, there ought to be some of those around. Oh, you have some? Five years too late. I threw out probably 25 years' worth oh. of National Geographic. Actually, I gave them away. So there's probably somebody else in the neighborhood. Yeah. <laughs> well, Thank you. Thank you. It's been fun. Thank you, Kate, and safe journeys. We have been talking today with Kate Froman, and we'll continue this conversation next week. I want to alert you to an event this Friday evening called Poetry Out Loud. This is actually a national event sponsored by National Endowment for the Arts, and it is a recitation program. So high school students are learning how to recite a poem that they choose from a whole collection of things made available to them, and the local teachers help out. The winners from the different schools in the county will be performing this Friday, 7 o'clock, at the Unitarian Universalist Fellowship, located at 
2201 Lawton, L-A-W-T-O-N Avenue here in San Luis Obispo. The winner of this event then goes to Sacramento and possibly from there to Washington, D.C. It's really an interesting time, and I think that you'll find it intriguing to go. For more details about Poetry Out Loud, visit the Arts Obispo website. You have been listening to Ears on Art here on KCBX Public Radio. Stephen and I will be back next Wednesday with part two of our interview with Kate Froman. Until then, this is Chrissa Hewitt, and on behalf of Stephen DeLuke, wish you a belated happy Groundhog's Day and forthcoming Valentine's Day. Take care, and as always, thank you so much for listening. <laughs>